Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery into Egypt, into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. This is God's word. For those who don't know me, my name's Matt. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. Let Let me add my welcome. And now we are going to hear from that same God who is working. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that we are here this morning. 
Thank you that we can sit and hear and listen to your word and hear you speak to us. Please open the eyes of our hearts that we might respond in faith. Amen. You've got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. That's what Bob Dylan sang about in his 1979 album, Slow Train Coming. You've got to serve somebody. And we do, don't we? We all serve somebody. Well, we all serve at least something, don't we? So, love me is the little thing on the handbag in the Marks and Spencers advert this Christmas, isn't it? Love me, love me, and presumably I will offer you, I don't know, security or feeling attractive or feeling comfortable. We all, we all worship, we all give our service to, to something. Uh, a small g god, you might want to call it. Now, I, I'm sure most of us here this morning don't worship handbags. Uh, a few husbands looking slightly sideways at their wives there. But there are, there are plenty of other small g gods that we do worship. Uh, small g gods that we are tempted to give our time and our energy to serve. Because we think that by serving them, by giving our time and energy to them, we will find meaning, security, happiness. Whether that's uh, financial security, you know, the number of zeros in the bank balance. Whether that's our sort of array of gadgets in the living room. The pursuit of happiness through one more possession or one more gadget. Or our children, living out our dreams through them, their success. Now look, I'm well aware that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't believe in God, I'm not going to be able to persuade you of his existence in a short talk like this. But what I can do, what I would aim to do, would be to lay out what sets the, the Christian capital G God apart from any other God who you could choose to worship. I mean, the pull, the pull of worshipping small G gods, if you like, is real whether you would call yourself a Christian or not. And what I aim to do this morning is to, is to simply commend faith in the capital G Christian God to all of us. If you closed your Bibles, please open them up again. We're on page 59, Exodus 3. For those of you who are here last week, this is the second in a little sort of mini-series. Um, I think the title of on the screen sort of says, you know, Awaiting the Glory of Christ. As Matt put it last week, we're in a mini-series on theophanies. That is where God appeared to his people in the Old Testament. Uh, and sometime, uh, well, it was, it was when God appeared in sort of physical and visible ways. Sometimes, like last week, it was when God kind of appeared, uh, seemed to take on human form. Sometimes it's like this week, where God appears through through the angel of the Lord. Did you see that in verse two, verse two, chapter three? There, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. This angel of the Lord figure, he's a, he's a kind of mysterious figure who appears quite often actually throughout the Old Testament. He appeared to Abraham, he was the guy who came and strengthened Elijah. 
And in some sense, he's distinct from God because God speaks to him at various places in the Old Testament. But he's also very closely sort of aligned or identified with God. And that seems certainly seems to be the case here. Because if you have a look at the end of verse 6, at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is a theophany. This is God revealing himself and how he works to his people. Why study theophanies? Well, I mean, you could, you could study them at any time of year. We're studying them particularly because it's Christmas time. Well, not quite yet, is it, sadly? But it's Advent and we're looking forward to Christmas. At Christmas time, God fully took on human nature. He took a human nature to himself and stepped into our world to reveal himself fully. Uh, and theophanies in the Old Testament kind of give us a, a foretaste of what would be fully revealed in Jesus. So that's why we're studying them now. And so, so on to our first point on your handout or up on the screen. The burning bush sheds light on what the Christian God is like. The burning bush sheds light on what the Christian God is like. You may know the story. At this point in the story of Exodus, uh, you'll remember that the Israelites are in bondage to the Egyptians. You know, and as we, as we mentioned in our prayers, we're, we're reminded this week with the sad passing of Nelson Mandela. What a, what a terrible thing it is when a people is enslaved. And that was certainly the case with the Israelites. If, uh, if we flicked over, have to look at chapter 1, verse 14. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used the Israelites ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and in all those long, dark years of slavery, naturally, obviously, the the Israelites groaned. And they cried out to God, and I wonder what they were saying. God, are, are we in slavery here because you are not powerful enough to do anything? Or did they cry out, God, are we in slavery here because you just don't care about us? You are remote, you are distant, you're aloof. God, where are you? And perhaps at painful times in our lives, we've wondered the same thing. God, are you either not powerful enough or are you not present enough with me, with us, to care? Well, at this point in our story, things are about to change for the Israelites. God is about to demonstrate that indeed he is both powerful and he is present with his people. And the culmination of this story will be the famous ten plagues, it'll be the Passover, it'll be the miraculous escape through the Red Sea on dry ground. But here, on the peaceful sand dunes of the land of Midian, in chapter 3, our, our story starts in earnest. We're in verse 2. As Moses is tending his father-in-law's sheep, Moses suddenly sees, he sees a strange light coming, coming from a bush in the distance. And he goes over to look at it. And, and the strangeness of this, this fire, this light, is that 
There's a fire, but there is a flame that does not consume. A flame that needs no fuel. A flame that exists on its own. A strange sight. And I don't know if I get this from a cartoon, but you kind of wonder whether what the sheep made of it, don't you? Kind of, there they are chewing on some bush, and they see this sight as well. Verse 3, and so Moses says, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Moses, Moses, comes the voice from the bush. Here I am. Moses replies. Verse 5, take off your sandals. Take off your sandals. Not in the same way that your mum used to tell you that before you walk through the door, or the way you now tell your kids before they walk through the door and you welcome them. No, stop. Take off your sandals. Come no closer Moses, you are on holy ground. Here is God himself appearing to Moses to to tell him, to tell the Israelites, and in turn to tell us what he is like. And what does God say? He says, verse 6, Moses, I am your God. Verse 6, Moses, I'm the God of your biological father. I'm the God of your descendants, your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. End of verse 6, Moses hides his face because he's terrified to look at God. Now don't forget, Moses has been brought up uh, in the the court of Pharaoh after his mother hid him in the reeds. And he's now in sort of self-imposed exile in the land of Midian after killing an Egyptian because he saw the Egyptian hassling two Hebrew slaves. It's not like Moses at this point is at all in any way the leader of God's people. It's not like Moses is kind of like the chief priest. Moses is a very strange choice for God to reveal himself to. I mean, would would Moses even have known very much about the God of his ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Would the name of the Hebrew God perhaps have just been a kind of a a dim memory from his from his early years? Would would the name of the Hebrew God been you know just one more God about the ancient amongst the ancient Near Eastern melee or pantheon of of deities? I imagine that is how many people in London today think of the Christian God. A a dim memory from Sunday school, perhaps. Just one more God in the the spiritual marketplace. And certainly it seems as if Moses may not have been entirely sure who this God who was revealing himself to him in the burning bush was. Flick down with me to, or flick over the page and look at verse 13, would you? Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? And what shall I tell them? And it it may well be that Moses didn't know the name of the Hebrew God. Perhaps, you know, religious instruction classes in, in Pharaoh's court or school system 
uh, he wasn't paying attention in and he'd forgotten or they didn't cover it. Or maybe, uh, or it may be that when, in verse 13, he questions God about, you know, what shall I tell him your name is? What, what he's really asking is, is God, what shall I tell him you're like? Because you may know this, in, in Hebrew thought, the, the kind of name of a person uh, told you about the, the essence of the person. If you knew someone's name, you kind of knew something about what they were like. I mean, we don't, we don't really have that. Uh, in England, in the West, we kind of do a little bit. You know, if you if you if you have a baby, you're probably going to check on the baby name websites just to check. You know, your your baby's name doesn't mean something terrible. You might do that. My wife likes to remind me occasionally that her name Megan means great, and you are, sweetie. <laughs> but 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 that idea is much is much stronger, much stronger in Hebrew thought. So when Moses says, what shall I tell the Israelites your name is? Uh, There is definitely an element to which he's saying, what shall I tell them that you are like? And what an answer, what an answer he gets, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You know, now we joke about baby names, don't we? No one is going to call their baby, I am. I mean, it'd be preposterous. Imagine you go to the sort of postnatal classes or the health clinic, and someone's like, oh, he's really cute, what's his name? Oh yeah, I am who I am. We love that name. It'd be preposterous. Preposterous when the kid's little. But massively arrogant as the child grew up. Imagine giving your child the name, I am who I am. You know, there he is, first week, you know, freshers week. Hi, I am who I am. What's your name? I mean, you sound like an absolute idiot, wouldn't you? But that is how God introduces himself to Moses. I am who I am. And in that name, what do we hear? What do we hear in the name, I am who I am? I think from, from the rest of the chapter, from the context, two things, and those are the next two points as we go through on the handout. In the name I am who I am, we hear God saying that he is a powerful God who rescues his people. I am who I am. Reality, says God, is that I am. Reality is that I exist. I need nothing. I am supreme. I just am says the Christian God. And I wonder, I, I don't know, this, this might be a little bit of speculation, but I wonder if we see something of that or whether that's the point of the burning bush. Normal fires need fuel to burn. Normal fires are dependent on that fuel. When the fuel runs out, the fire is spent, it fades. But the flames of this burning bush that Moses sees do not consume Because this is the God who needs nothing. This is the God whose existence is supreme. This is the God whose existence depends on no one and no thing. I am, says God, because he's entirely self-sufficient. And this God, this God who, who just, who is, this God who needs nothing, 
the one who is supreme in power. This is the God who is about to powerfully rescue his people out of slavery. So that's what, that's what God says in verse 7, right at the top of the page. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land of the Egyptians. And what a mighty rescue it will be. Flick across, flick down again to, to verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God is about to stretch out his hand and demonstrate with wonder his power over the Egyptian gods, the small g gods. In the coming chapters, if we were to read on, we would see the Lord sending plagues that demonstrated that, in fact, he is powerful precisely where the Egyptians thought their gods were powerful. God sending plagues that would demonstrate that he is in charge precisely where the Egyptians thought that their gods were in charge. Demonstrating that it is within his his power over the whole land to give or to withhold what is needed for life. Demonstrating to the Egyptians that the gods that they trusted in to protect them for security, for comfort, were just hollow divinities who offered nothing more than the illusion of safety and and all those other things. God is about to act with wonder to rescue his people. And what a a joyous end there will be. Verse 8. I have come down to rescue my people from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And what a a beautiful image, a land flowing with milk and honey. It, It speaks of... Uh, you know, fertility, the, the wholesomeness of the land, a land of abundance, of goodness, a garden country bursting with life. God says, I am, I am powerful. I am going to rescue you and take you to that land. So the voice in the burning bush sheds light on what the Christian God is like. He is powerful and he rescues his people. But more than that, our third point there on the sheet. God is present with and relates to his people. See, that name, I am who I am, also conveys the idea of God's presence with his people. Have a look at verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. Now in the Hebrew, literally, it is, I am with you. And the word is exactly the same word as that in verse 14, where God says, I am who I am. So God is saying in in verse 12, you know, it's kind of a play on words. I am with you. The the name I am 
implies God's presence, God's dwelling with his people. And again, maybe, slightly speculation, no one really knows the true significance of the burning bush, but maybe there's something even in the sign of the burning bush that that hints at that, that hints at God's presence. Certainly later on in in the rest of the story, on this very mountain, God is going to descend in fire and his presence is going to be with his people on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the same as Mount Horeb here. And at the end of Exodus, God is going to be with his people, leading them through the wilderness with the pillar of fire by night. So it may be even in the sign of the burning bush, it's God saying, look, I am with you in your midst. I am with you as your God. And there's certainly much more in that vein in chapter 3. Now look, I don't know... um, I'm talking about a rescue. I don't know if anyone has been rescued by emergency services. Uh, no, no one's admitting it. Uh, Megan and I have got a friend called Ben. Uh, he works in the military. Uh, he's the winch guy. I, I guess you call him that. Or well, he's the guy who's actually lowered down on the winch to, to rescue people. You know, and, and in peacetime, sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's civilians they rescue. Uh, you know, he's, he's been involved in lots of things, military rescues. Uh, hikers getting caught on the mountainside when the fog comes down, absent-minded holiday makers drifting out to sea on their lilos. Now, I don't suppose in any of those situations my friend Ben had a relationship prior to that rescue. Okay? And I'm pretty sure in none of those rescues he's kind of going, oh, I want to rescue this person and I'll be their best friend for the rest of their lives and I'll be with them all the time and you know, I'll be at their kids' christenings and all that kind of stuff. No, it's just his job. I mean, it's a great job. Sounds like quite a cool job. I'm sure he likes it. I'm sure the people whom he rescues are really grateful. But it's just his job. There's no real relationship prior. There's no relationship afterwards. Not so with the God who says, I am who I am. Did you notice that repeated frame three times, verses 6, 15, and 16? Moses, I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is God saying, I am the God who made promises to be with you and your people. I am the God who made these promises long ago, and I have not yet, and I will never forsake the promises I make. I am who I am. God is present with and for his people. God is not aloof to his people's suffering. Verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying. What a wonderful thing to worship a God who hears the crying of his people. That is a, that is a precious thing. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, Psalms 56, the, the psalmist says, God, you've, you've kept count of my laments. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God is with his people. God cares about his people. God hears the crying of his people. Verse 16 God who from the beginning has watched over his people. This is the Lord who promises Moses that as he goes to Pharaoh, he will be there with his people. 
And you'll know, of course, that Moses, Moses does go to Pharaoh and there's, let my people go. No, I won't. Let my people go. And eventually God, with, with outstretched hand, rescues his people. And he brings, if we'd flick, if we could flick on to Exodus 19, we won't. But if we did, when, when God has brought his people out, when God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt to the very mountain upon which Moses is standing now, what does he say to his people? Okay, there you go, I've rescued you. Off you go, you're on your own now. Not a bit of it. After this rescue is complete, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. I am who I am implies God's presence and God's power. Yet actually, I've got to be very clear with you, I am who I am. I don't think that is actually God's name, according to this passage. Okay? This is a bit complicated, you have to listen carefully here. God's name, strictly speaking, is the Lord. That's that thing that we have in our Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. I think that is what God is saying, strictly speaking, his name is. Have a look in verse 15. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. The Lord, Yahweh, is is the name of the Hebrew God. But you say to me, okay, Matt, well, that's a little bit confusing because we've been speaking as if I am who I am is the name of God. What's the relationship between I am and this name Yahweh or Lord? And the answer is actually in the footnote there. If you have a look at the footnote to verse 14, the little, uh, verse 15, excuse me. Do you see that little C there right at the bottom of your page? It says, the Hebrew for Lord sounds like and may be derived from the Hebrew for I am. So God is, God is saying, my name is Yahweh, my name is the Lord. But the point of the I am who I am saying is the point of the whole of Exodus, is the point of this chapter certainly, is to flesh out and teach us the full meaning, the full weight, the full richness, the full wonder of who God is saying he is when he says, I am the Lord. When Moses, when the Israelites, when, when we hear God say, I am the Lord, we are to hear him say, I am who I am. I am the God who is powerful to rescue. I am the God who is present with his people. All of which is to say, final point on the sheet, the Christian God is renowned for his power and presence. The Christian God is renowned for his power and presence. That's what the episode with the burning bush reveals. And certainly after the rescue that God spoke about here happened, after after God had led them out through the Red Sea, uh, and they're safe on dry ground on the other side, what is it? what is it that Moses sings about? Moses does. He sings a song of praise to this Lord. In chapter 15, he sings to God and he says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord. 
And that is, that is the song that any Christian, when they're in their right minds, that is the song that any Christian sings in their hearts today. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Not, of course, that we don't feel the pull of worshipping the small g gods of looking at the bank balance, of looking at the wardrobe, the school report, the title on our business card, our golf handicap. Not that we don't feel the pull of looking at those things for our security, our comfort. But a Christian says, despite all of that, we say, no, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? And Moses and what Moses and what the Israelites saw was real. It happened. And Moses did see God, in a sense. But if we were to flick to the New Testament, if we were to read what the people who saw God fully clothed in human flesh read, we would read John one of Jesus' closest friends saying this, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, as Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Any of us who've got a Bible in our hands and who can see Jesus in that sense, the Bible says we are in a better position, even than Moses on that hillside in Horeb those hundreds and thousands of years ago. Moses saw a God who heard his people's cries. Moses saw a God who watched over them and who was concerned for them. In Jesus, in Jesus, we see that compassion fully realized and embodied as God took to himself a human nature and stepped into our history and walked among us. In Jesus, we see a God who not only heard our cries, but who wept himself at the pain, at the sin, at the brokenness of life in this world. Moses saw a God who was present with his people. Jesus promised that everyone who believes in him would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and that by that gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself would be intimately present with his people at every step through the wilderness of this life. Our small g gods promise comfort, promise security. But for how long? Until the sugar rush wears off? Until it goes out of fashion? Until the next version comes along? Till the, rene- till the next recession bites? In Jesus we see a God who promises to be with us forever. Moses saw a God who was powerful to rescue his people. Jesus promised a rescue that is even greater than that. The Bible talks about all mankind being held in slavery. The Israelites were held in slavery in Egypt. The Bible talks actually that every single person naturally is, is held in slavery by the fear of death. 
And whether we fear death because it's kind of the ultimate full stop at the end of our life that potentially makes all that we do futile, or whether we fear death, as the Bible would encourage us to do, because after death comes judgment. Death is the shroud that hangs over all humanity. And the Bible says every person is held in slavery by its fear. And there is only one God I know who has conquered death and can free us from the fear of being slavery to it, and that is Jesus. Jesus, the God who died a sinner's death, who rose to life, that all who put their trust in him, just like we saw symbolized in the baptism pool earlier on, all who put their trust in him can rise and be led into eternal life, not just a land flowing with milk and honey, but eternal ages that will roll on together, where God says there will be no more pain or mourning or crying or fear or death anymore because the old order of things has passed away. In the burning bush, we see a God who is powerful and present with his people. How much more so in Jesus do we see a God who is powerful and present with his people? You've got to serve somebody. Yeah. And this, what we've talked about this morning, is why Christians worship and serve the big G God, whose name is the Lord, whose name is Jesus. Let me pray. Our oh, Father, you know, you know our hearts, you know that we, we wander off after we might call small g gods, gods that are in reality hollow divinities. We praise you for what you've shown us this morning of who you really are, that you are the God who is eternally self-sufficient in his existence and who in that power promises to rescue his people through death, from the fear of judgment into the eternal ages. We praise you that in Jesus we see a God who is present, personally present with his people, who will never leave them nor forsake them. And we ask, our Lord, that you will help us in the light of what we see in the burning bush, in the light of what we see in Jesus, the true light of the world, that we will give ourselves to worshipping you fully, wholeheartedly, and you alone. Amen.